You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 401 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you live on this fine Wednesday evening. And uh, later on in the podcast, we will have an extensive interview with Chris Stone of the Sporting News and all over the place on the internet, an NBA draft expert. As as the way I would describe Chris, he knows a lot of what's going on in the NBA draft world, very well schooled, and you'll want to stay tuned for that interview. Before we get to it, though, uh, some news to hit on. And, uh, you know, most of it is draft related, but also a little bit of summer league news to touch on here in a second. Um, First, Trey Young came to town for a workout on Tuesday. Uh, the AJC actually posted a full video of that. I was there, but was not, you know, not filming, but uh, was recording audio. I thought uh, Young handled the interview very well. I should note that uh, workouts are actually closed to the media, so no one's actually allowed to watch the workouts. The Hawks did release a little bit of footage, about a minute's worth of uh, footage on Trey Young and Jaron Jackson, who worked out on Wednesday. Um, But in the midst of talking to Trey Young, he revealed that he actually met with the Hawks coaching staff on Monday night for dinner, uh, headlined by Lloyd Pierce, of course, the head coach. And uh, they talked about Steve Nash, apparently, which was uh, uh, Lloyd Pierce's uh, college teammate and is someone who apparently uh, Young is talking to throughout the process. And uh, that's a very, very positive comparison for Troy Young uh, in terms of you're looking for uh, his ultimate upside. could be uh, Nash-like, and uh, we'll have plenty more on Troy Young when talking to Chris Stone later on in the podcast. We'll at least get that out there. He did, he did uh, work out for the Hawks by himself on Tuesday. Uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. was in town earlier today on Wednesday for a solo workout. And then on Thursday, as you're probably recording, as you're probably listening to this, I should say, after I'm recording this on Wednesday evening, uh, Mo Bamba and Marvin Bagley are both going to be in town for separate individual workouts on Thursday morning. I plan to be in attendance for that. Also, Travis Schlank is supposed to be uh, speaking to the media uh, sometime on Thursday morning, so I will be in attendance for that and will hopefully take come, come away with a little bit of information on the way that Schlank is uh, thinking about this process right now. Of course, uh, general managers are not always prone to sharing a ton of information this time of, this time of year. He did say on radio, and uh, this was actually passed along uh, on Twitter via Kale Chenard. He was actually, Shaka uh, was talking on 99 The Game earlier this week, and he, and he referenced, uh, quote, three or four guys that the Hawks are looking at at this point in time. Did mention uh, that they think one of those guys might be gone, and that uh, I'm sure is DeAndre Ayton, although he did not say that specifically. And they're trying to figure out who's going to be available at number three, in addition to sort of uh, putting their draft board in order at this point in time. So I think the Hawks are certainly narrowing things down. Uh, of course, there's all the Trey Young buzz. I think if you put a gun to my head, I would tell you that that Trey Young is not going number three overall. Um, still, I would not rule it out to be sure. And uh, plenty more of uh, sort of intel on that. And my feelings are probably are pretty well documented at this point. I would not take him at three. I do think Trey Young is a legitimate, you know, top six, seven prospect in his class. So it wouldn't be absolutely egregious in terms of uh, you know value wise. Uh, in this class, but I think there's a pretty good separation between the guys I have in the in the top three or four and Trey Young. So that's probably all I'll say about that for now. And then we'll talk more about the draft when Chris gets here in a few moments. Uh, last thing before we get into the interview with Chris is that the uh, the summer league schedule is now full, at least to the extent that it actually can be. At this point in time, the Hawks, of course, will be starting things in Utah, but uh, the Las Vegas summer league schedule was announced earlier this week. Uh, All 30 teams are going to be in Las Vegas, which we talked about on the podcast before, and every single game of the entire week plus will be broadcast on ESPN, ESPN2, ESPNU, or NBA TV. So that'll be the first time that every single game will be broadcast in that form. Pretty cool step there from the league. The Hawks have three games scheduled. They'll open with the New York Knicks 
on Saturday, July 7th at 5.30 Eastern Time. Then they'll follow that up with a game against the Portland Trailblazers on Saturday, uh, sorry, on Sunday, July 8th at 5.30 Eastern. And then the Chicago Bulls on Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, those will be uh, not necessarily prime games in Las Vegas because they are in the afternoon schedule there, but actually works out pretty well for Hawks fans that are getting off work on that Tuesday, for instance, or if they're just in their sweet spot on that Saturday and su- Saturday and Sunday, they'll be able to tune in uh, locally. Uh, the Hawks have uh, a game on the ESPN Mothership, actually, that, that opener against the Knicks, which should pit two top ten picks against one another, will be on ESPN proper on that Saturday. The Hawks do have the... Uh, the first day of Summer League off, actually, in Vegas. The uh, the Vegas Summer League starts on Friday, July 6th, but Atlanta does not play on the opening day because they are going to be traveling from Utah. If You might you might remember this from uh, earlier in the summer, uh, but the Hawks will be playing three games in the Utah Summer League, first against the Memphis Grizzlies on, on July 2nd, then San Antonio Spurs on July 3rd, and the Utah Jazz uh, in Utah, of course, on July 5th, before they before they will uh, then hop in a uh, in a plane or bus or however they whatever they want to get there. The six hour drive if they want to do that from Salt Lake City over to Vegas, and then they'll have the day off on the sixth before jumping into action on July 7th. Uh, just a little bit of a housekeeping here. I'll be in Vegas the entire way. For, for on-site coverage, so you won't miss anything for Vegas. I will say, though, I will not be in Utah due to some scheduling stuff with my day job, and uh, we'll be missing those three games. Uh, they, they will be televised, though, so we'll have uh, plenty of opportunity, and uh, the couple of uh, Hawks media members that I know will be in attendance, so I'm sure there'll be some stuff emanating from Utah, but I'll be catching up with the team in Vegas, and we'll have plenty of coverage when Summer League arrives. Also, a couple of intriguing matchups uh, just on the on the agenda there in terms of, on paper at least, the Hawks will be matching up against top rookies, against the uh, Bulls have a top-10 pick, the Knicks have a top-10 pick, and then Memphis actually is the first game on July 2nd. We'll uh, uh, hopefully be pitting the number three and number four, number four overall picks, provide everybody stays put where they are at this point in time. So lots to talk about and discuss and analyze there. Uh, too early to talk about the rosters, I will say, at this point in time. And the Hawks will announce that probably until close to July, or at least early July. Um, I guess because they're playing the second, they'll probably have to have the roster pretty quickly, quickly after the draft. But in the same breath, uh, guys who I expect to be there would be Tyler Dorsey, Isaiah Taylor, uh, Antonio's Cleveland, Jalen Morris. And, and I think it's probably likely that we'll see John Collins at some point. Same with DeAndre Bembry. And then we'll talk about the rookies, of course, however many they draft, whether it be three, four, could even uh, add more if they wanted to trade back in this class. But I think we're going to see at least a handful of rookies. There'll be plenty of guys to sort of take a, take a look at and evaluate during that summer league joint. Uh, so uh, without further ado, we'll get, we'll, get to, we'll get to Chris Stone after a little bit of break, but please please subscribe to the podcast. I wanted to remind you guys to do that before we get into Chris's interview. And uh, after this break, we'll talk to Chris Stone. Chris, thanks for joining me, man. What's going on? Not too much. Really talk, happy to talk about the Hawks draft. They seem to be in an interesting position this year. Yes, it's very, very interesting. Uh, this is very different from uh, the last couple of years that I've been doing this when the Hawks were you know, not necessarily always playing super deep into the playoffs, although they did a couple of times. Uh, but, you know, spending all of May and uh, all of June basically ex- solely in draft and really not even for agency because free agency is not really a big thing for the Hawks this year, too. It's been a lot of draft coverage, which I'm enjoying because I'm a draft guy and I, I know you are as well. So always fun to talk about this stuff. Uh, just so you know, and this is kind of funny, but uh, you're coming in. The, my most recent podcast had Robbie Callen of Uprock Sports, who's a good friend of mine, both online and offline, and uh, he is not a Trey Young fan. Uh, so let's start with Trey Young. You're actually a little bit higher on him than the consensus, I think, of what I've read of yours. What do you think of Trey Young as a prospect, uh, both as sort of like a reasonable projection of what he'll be and what his high end ceiling outcome is? Because I think a, a lot of Hawks fans really like Trey Young, and some other people are more skeptical. 
Yeah, so I, I, I do really like Trey Young. Uh, I went to Kansas, so I'm a Big 12 guy and watched a ton of Oklahoma this year in particular. Um, I'm really excited about the possibility of a ceiling outcome. I think that you know there are a lot of median outcomes or even lower end outcomes that are obviously dangerous outcomes for him. I think that the defense can be a real problem. There's a legitimate chance that at least for a year or two of his career, he's the worst defender in the NBA. But if he hits the high end outcome of his offense, I think that there's a chance that he's just a really great prospect because of his ability to shoot off the dribble, the gravitational pull of his jump shot. And I think that his passing is something that largely goes overlooked in these discussions because so much of the comparisons to like Steph Curry happen based on the shooting. When in reality, like I think his ceiling outcome is someone like Damian Lillard, who's a better passer. Um, Young was, I, I wrote an article about this for the step back a while ago, but Young was like the best one and done freshman in terms of assists per 40 minutes in the last like, you know, 10 to 12 years, uh, and just had the ability to make the guys around him better. Oklahoma didn't have a particularly talented core around him, uh, and all of those players, for the most part, other than one member of the starting lineup, outplayed their preseason projections in terms of offensive rating. Yeah, I think that's something that you have to focus on. I probably haven't done a good enough job sort of highlighting that about Young because, you know, there's been this buzz that the Hawks have interest in him. I'm not sure that means that they're going to take him at three or at least even consider it that, but I think it's at least plausible. He was in for a workout this week. There's lots of interest in Young. I think I need to do a better job talking about his positives. And passing is one that I love with him. I think his court vision is very impressive and almost more impressive because of what you mentioned before. Oklahoma was not like this loaded uh, college basketball team. He carried them a lot and obviously got a ton of recognition for that early on before he, he sort of cooled off and the team cooled off down the stretch. But I'm uh, I'm almost more focused on that than I am his score. I mean, obviously his scoring is the calling card and his shooting off the dribble, especially as you mentioned. But uh, the passing is what makes me a little bit higher on him than I probably would have been normally because, you know, pure scores are not really my thing, frankly. But uh, his passing vision really helps. It's something that he's uh, – it's almost become underrated, honestly. If you haven't seen him at all, you just hear the, you hear the Steph Curry comps and think about him shooting from 30 feet away. But his passing is actually quite impressive. Yeah, I mean, I think if there were one statistic that people should look at that I, I find particularly interesting is last year uh, or the year before last, I guess, when Young was not on the team, they were 118th nationally in adjusted offensive efficiency. Uh, this year, they were 37th in adjusted offensive efficiency. And so while, you know, I think that there are some question marks about how much better he actually made them given some of the loss on defense, I think that um, the idea of him as someone who's going to, you know, suck the air out of the ball and not be someone who can facilitate a winning offense is, is certainly overblown. Yeah, I, I think I saw you have him number four on your big board now. Is that right? Most yeah, and that's, one. I mean, almost entirely based on the possibility of a ceiling outcome. I just think that there is such a, a potential to change the game if he hits that ceiling. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. That's one of the reasons. I think I'm a little lower than you, but sort of in that same ballpark just because I do think, especially for the Hawks, it almost makes more sense because there's this notion, especially in the fan base, um, that they just absolutely have to find this number one offensive option. And if that's what you're looking for, you know his 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 upside might be the highest in the whole draft offensively. Uh, I think that's pretty reasonable to say. Is that is, do you think that's close or at least you know somewhere in that ballpark? Yeah, I mean I think his ceiling outcome certainly that's true uh, relative to all of the other prospects. Yeah, I mean defensively, uh, you know I've, I've said plenty about that. I think you just did as well. It's it's going to be pretty ugly there, I think, for a while. But at point guard, there are guys in the league who uh, have been all star level players who are bad defensive players. I do think he might be worse than those guys typically, um, but at the same time, if he if he hits all the boxes offensively, you're not going to necessarily care all that much. I think obviously it'll lower his ceiling a little bit as an overall player, but if he becomes the offensive player that he could be, um, you know nobody's going to be upset necessarily that, that he goes in the top five, six, seven picks. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, with the defense, you're you're looking at two problems. One is that he's obviously undersized. So that makes him a natural target to hunt, especially in the playoffs. And the other is just the effort level question. And, and what you're betting on is that a reduction in offensive role or uh, an improvement in strength and kind of his physical training regimen uh, eliminates that second problem and, and maybe in some way helps fix the first. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I don't want to. Do, I don't want to do too much on Trayon, but I do. I, I did recognize it was kind of. I had a little laugh to myself when we talked about you coming on. Uh, and realized that you were coming on right after Robbie, who basically killed him for <laughs> twenty minutes on my most recent podcast. So uh, hopefully that balances out, and people will stop yelling at me about Trey Young at this point in time. Uh, I'm on record just to sort of change gears here. I'm on record as saying that the Hawks should be doing cartwheels. If Luka Doncic slips to three, I think you are in line with that based on your most recent big board. What do you what do you see in Doncic, and uh, is it as crazy to you as it is to me that he actually might fall that far? Yeah, I think it's totally insane that he might fall that far, and I, I kind of honestly think it's totally insane that he might not go number one, uh, and that he probably won't go number one. Um, it's really difficult for me to watch the playoffs and the way that those played out over the course of you know the last couple of months and see the teams that are winning and the type of players that go into winning uh, and have somebody think about the idea that a six foot eight initiator who is really great in the pick and roll, uh, really great as a passer, projects to be really great as a shooter, uh, is not somebody that people would want on their team at the top of the draft. That's insane to me. And he's played against by far the highest level of competition of anybody in the draft. I think it's um, hysterical when people are like, well, Luka Doncic doesn't play against NBA players. And it's like, well, how many NBA players do you think DeAndre Ayton played against in um, the Pac-12? People like to cite Arizona, the Arizona State game that DeAndre Ayton had as a big game for, for why that tips it in his favor. And it's like he played against six foot nine front line guys. But with Doncic, it's a record of production against incredibly high competition and skills that are necessary for teams that want to win in the modern NBA. And I just think like that's the total package. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. Um, you know, I guess more is made of his athleticism than I would probably make of it. But how much of a, how much of a concern is that for you? And I, I've always, I've often said that it you know, because he's so big, it matters less to me. But at the same time, I will acknowledge that like it's not like he's, he's this great athlete, so it's going to come into a it's going to come into being an, so I, maybe not an issue, but it's going to be a factor at some point. I just don't know how much of a factor it's actually going to be. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are components of his athleticism that he's terrific at, and then there are components that he obviously has problems with. I think his start-stop athleticism in terms of his ability to decelerate and create separation that way is some of the best that we've seen for a prospect in this class. But I think that in terms of some of the other stuff, lateral mobility, even some of the vertical explosion questions, those are are realistic concerns. Um, the thing that I point to, I guess, in, in favor of Doncic there is that he's basically been playing basketball for the last 18 months and hasn't had an opportunity to have an off-season training regimen where he could potentially improve some of those things. And I think we've seen with some prospects, like, for example, Jason Tatum, uh, a prospect who, who last year, to me, didn't stand out athletically. And then this year, you see kind of some of the dunks that he throws down, and it's clear that he made an athletic improvements uh, over the course of the off-season leading up to the NBA season. And I think you hope with Doncic that some of that same stuff can happen when he really gets into a training regimen and has some time away from actually playing basketball games. Yeah, I uh, totally agree with that. And I'm actually interested to see how that looks. Maybe not necessarily as a rookie, but as he moves forward, and maybe even as a rookie, because he's not going to have this huge break necessarily. He's still playing basketball right now, which is <laughs> kind of crazy to think about. But uh, there is at least a little bit of time once he gets into a system. And you know, you know, selfishly talking about the Hawks, uh, Atlanta's uh, new facility and their, and their training guys, their partnership with P3, they have a lot going on in that kind of arena that makes me very interested to see what would happen 
if he were to land here. Um, I was listening to uh, Nate Duncan and Daniel LaRue break him down, uh, actually, I guess earlier today on Wednesday when we're recording this. Uh, they were they seemed very high on him. Um, basically, I think they, they both said in terms of the guys that they've actually evaluated so far, he was the number one prospect. But they painted a sort of a pretty glum picture of his defense. I'm a little higher on it than they were, but is that a concern for you? And I, I think you know some of it's going to be basketball IQ. I think he'll be just kind of be in the right spot at the right time. But what's the downside defensively with Doncic, knowing that he's not again like a plus effort like that? I mean, I think that the downside, right, is that he can be hunted in playoff series just in one-on-one situations because he doesn't have the quickest foot speed laterally. And so, if he can get switched on to a uh, quicker point guard, he's going to be potentially in some trouble in those one-on-one situations. But like you just said, I think that he has the pu- the chance to be a really plus team defender, both in terms of weak side rotations around the rim. He's shown a little bit of that. Uh, and in terms of jumping into passing lanes, I don't think he's a great one-on-one defender. There's certainly, I think, effort concern there and skill concern there, but he's just such a smart basketball player that it's hard for me to imagine that he'll be a total negative on that end. Yeah, I'm not expecting him to be a shutdown guy by any means, and that won't be his calling card, but uh, he is so big, as I mentioned before, like, I think people just don't understand, like, you know, he's a legit, what, 6'8", 230, 235, like, he's a legitimate, uh, you know, full-size, small forward player. I think whether you play him on the, you know, play him at point guard, quote-unquote, offensively, or not, like, he's still that big, and that kind of opens up a lot of things, you know, passing vision on offense, and defensively just kind of being long and in the way. Uh, of course, we don't, we don't know, we don't, all, we don't really know all, all of his measurements, but I think it's pretty safe to say that he's going to measure up just fine, um, you know, physically in terms of uh, length and all that fun stuff. Um, you know, is it a situation where if you were the Hawks at number three, you would be trying to, j- to jump up? I mean, obviously, we, we don't know a ton about, you know, intel as to who's going to go where, all that stuff. But is he is he so far ahead of the other guys for you that you'd be, if you were the Hawks or someone in that range of three, four, really trying to look up uh, in, in this draft and potentially move up into that one or two spot? I think it would probably depend pretty significantly on what I would be giving up to move up there. And the reason that it's always so hard, I know that it's always so hard to do that. It's it's unfair. But the reason that I say that is, is not necessarily meant as just a a question of what you would be giving up, but because it seems so obvious that DeAndre Ayton is going to go number one. And then from my perspective, the top two draft picks uh, available are still in the draft at that stage. And that's Doncic and Jaron Jackson Jr. So I suppose that, yes, I think Doncic is on a tier above Jackson um, in terms of just skill level and and relevance to the modern game. But if I were in a position where I would have to give up a significant amount of assets to move up that spot to get Doncic, I would probably be just totally happy if Jaron Jackson fell into my lap at number three, um, because I think that he is probably a tier above, in my mind, the next set of prospects after that. And so, you know, I think that that question is, is an important one. Like, should you look at moving up for Doncic, depending on what it's going to cost? But and I'm not sure that everybody's as high on Jared Jackson as I am, but um, from my perspective, if DeAndre is going to go number one, I think the Hawks will have, if I were in charge, a relatively easy decision between either Doncic or Jackson, whichever one falls to them. Yeah, and I think that's been a lot of uh, what I've been thinking. I do think, and I was actually, it's a good point to transition into, uh, you know, since the lottery came out, at least when the early stages, it kind of, everybody assumed that it was going to be uh, eight and Doncic in some order at one, two, before all of this buzz kind of got out there that Doncic might slip a little bit. And since then, you know, a lot of the Hawks fan argument has basically been between Jaron Jackson and Marvin Bagley. Uh, sounds like you're on the Jackson side of that, but um, are those guys close to you? And what do you see in both of them in terms of their projections? Because uh, in some ways, it's sort of a traditional uh, comparison in that Bagley is this uh, offense first production guy and Jackson is this sort of defense first toolsy younger kind of player. So it makes, it makes for a very interesting argument at the very least. 
Yeah, I think Jackson is a step above Bagley for me right now. And that's with the caveat that I am a pretty big Mark and Bagley fan, especially I think relative to a, a decent percentage of, of the draft universe that I think just has question marks uh, about his defensive ability. Uh, I really like Jackson's fit in the modern game. And I think that he is much more or has at least the potential to be uh, much more than the three and D center that he's been billed at. Right. I think everybody knows that he has the ability to knock down shots. Even if the shooting motion is funky, he's had consistent results from deep since high school. Uh, and he is for my money, probably the best defensive player in the draft. I think that he can switch on the guards in the pinch. His lateral mobility is great. He has terrific instincts, excellent feel. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are jumping on the Muhammad Bamba bandwagon and realistically like Jaron Jackson is the thing that people want Muhammad Bamba to be. Uh, with just a little bit less wingspan. And I don't think Bamba translates the wingspan uh, as well as Jackson does on the floor. So the thing that I think gives Jackson an edge to me is that I think that he has a lot more of a face-up game than some of these guys do. We saw him uh, on multiple occasions this season attack closeouts with one or two dribbles, get to the rim and elevate over defenders. Uh, occasionally he can drop off a pass in those situations. We don't see much of a pull-up game from him, which is maybe an area where Bagley could have an advantage over time. Um, but the defensive end for Jackson is just such a positive in relationship to Bagley that I have him a cut above. And I still think Bagley's really great. Like Bagley's face-up game is impressive to me. I think he can do some short role playmaking. I'm a buyer uh, in the shot mechanics and think that that's going to work out. But the defensive concerns in terms of the rim protection are are real and in terms of instincts are real. But I do will say with Bagley, I think that like the physical capability of being a switch defender uh, is probably part of the reason that I think he's a better prospect, for example, than DeAndre Ayton, just because I like the offense a little bit better, and I think he can equal uh, Ayton's defensive capabilities because of the switching. Yeah, I do think if you're a Marvin Bagley fan, you have to really believe in him as a, as a perimeter defender, more so than a rim protector, yeah. because I don't see that being a thing. I mean, I know... I know he's athletic, and I know he, you know, he can get up there and, and sort of vertically, but you know, length-wise and acumen-wise, I just don't see him ever being this like top-tier rim protector. But he is so athletic that he can he can get on the floor and fly around. I can I can sort of see that uh, defensively, I, even though I have some concerns. And I mean, everybody always asks me about Jackson and Bagley, and I keep leaning Jackson. I've I've been I've been loath to sort of state on the record that I would de- I would definitely take Jackson number three over Bagley, only because I'm trying to keep myself as long as possible to make that decision. But every time I've had a, sort of the gun to my head so. Far in a mock draft or something like that, when I'm you know, people ask me to weigh in, I kind of always go Jackson if Doncic isn't there, and you, you sort of stated some of the reasons why. I guess the the biggest question though that people always ask me that are Hawks fans that are worried because, as I mentioned before, a lot of people want they want offense and they they see Jaron Jackson's college numbers and they get worried. And I try I try to talk them down a little bit, but what do you what do you see from him offensively? I I think you and I agree that he's the best defensive prospect in this class, and that's something I've been saying for a while. But offensively. What do you see as like, maybe not as an ultimate ceiling, but what do you see as like a reasonable outcome for his offense? I think that there's a reasonable chance that he's a dual threat pick and pop player uh, who can attack closeouts reasonably well off the dribble. Hopefully he develops some of that passing acumen. Um, I think he's almost certain to be a quality shooter from NBA three point range. I don't know that he's ever going to be the centerpiece of an offense, but I don't know realistically how many post players are at this point. Um, But I do think he can be, you know, the second best player on a title team uh, with that type of offensive contribution, just the ability to shoot, the ability ability to vertical space as a pick and roll threat. You know, one of the most interesting statistics I think that exists this year is Jaron Jackson finished exactly zero plays rolling to the basket for Michigan State because of the way that their offense was set up. So 
some of the things that I think people want to see out of him offensively are just things that didn't happen at Michigan State because the way that team was constructed. And I think that those are things he's capable of. He certainly seems like a part of, smart enough player to be able to find space, athletic enough to go up and get lobs. Uh, and if he can do both of those things, both go chase lobs uh, and shoot threes and attack those closeouts when they come to him, I think that that's a really valuable offensive piece. Yeah, I have this feeling that if he didn't go to Michigan State uh, and went somewhere else that was a better fit for him, he might be like, like a consensus number two prospect <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Uh, some of that's just uh, the Tom Mezzo experience and the fact that he was playing power forward next to like Nick Ward. And, uh, you know, it, famously in the NCAA tournament, he sort of sat in the second half for a sixth year senior with no ACL. Um, yeah, yeah, just, some, just some, weird, some weird stuff there at Michigan State. Yeah, that I was mean, not. It's, it's... Go ahead. It was a weird roster to get into, right? It I was. mean, Nick Ward had established himself really credibly as a post threat. Um, they brought in another freshman in Xavier Tillman. They had uh, a number of experienced um, post players as well. So, you know, they had six front court guys on the roster, and it just didn't make sense for them to sacrifice, you know, one of those guys and move Jackson to center and Miles Bridges to power forward because they didn't really have the guard depth uh, to fit around it. So I think you're right that if he's in a different situation, and, and maybe, you know, he didn't expect to have this type of a year uh, and expected to be there an extra year or something like that. Um, but I think if he were in a different situation, we probably would be talking about it a little differently. Yeah, I think people have sort of forgotten that he was like a you know a consensus top five. I mean, top five, top ten prospect coming out of high school. It wasn't like this guy came out of nowhere and was like yeah. this weird bit player. Like people treat him like he's Zaire Smith, and it's like no, that's not what happened. Like he yeah. was he was an awesome prospect in high school and has always been an awesome prospect. So anyway, uh, Jaron Jackson is very good at basketball, and I, I hope Hawks fans can see that and uh, hopefully learn that if he becomes. And Atlanta Hawk in the next uh, week or so. Um, you mentioned him. You mentioned the next guy in passing. I wanted to ask you about, and that's Mo Bamba. You, I think you're lower than anybody I've ever seen on Bamba, and I think <laughs> I'm, I, I don't hate that opinion. Honestly, I think I'm definitely lower on him than some people are. There's this growing sentiment. I think his agent's done fantastic work in the last couple of weeks. The PR campaign is on fire. It's so good. <laughs> it's uh, it, he's he's very good on camera as well, which helps. And obviously, the seven ten wingspan kind of just writes itself, frankly. But I'm not saying you think he's going to be bad. But what do you, what do you see about Bamba that other people are necessarily probably getting a little bit over aggressive with him at this point? Yeah, so I think it's me and, and Jonathan Sharks at the Ringer who have him uh, outside of the top ten. I had him eleven on my most recent board. Uh, a, a large percentage of that was my willingness to move up some perimeter prospects into the top 10 uh, above Bamba, largely because of the way that the playoffs played out. And I really value the option uh, to draft players who I think can contribute in playoff environments. I don't necessarily trust Bamba's ability to defend on the perimeter uh, to any significant degree. I know that a lot of people are kind of hyping that up as something that he can do, but it's not really something we saw him do much this year at all. I think that in a lot of situations, he got himself into trouble, just doesn't have the technique there. And with his tall frame, it obviously forces him, I think, to get a little more upright than some other uh, bigs who defend on the perimeter. And I think that that's a significant concern. I also think that, you know, the size questions are a little bit overblown on the defensive end. I, I don't necessarily think that he always uses his seven foot ten wingspan, the nine foot six or nine foot seven standing reach to its full uh, capability. I think that he lacks some of the instincts and rotational awareness around the basket, and that's a big concern for me in terms of projecting his defensive ceiling. You know, a lot I think during this pre-draft process has been made about the jump shot and the changes in the mechanics. Um, throughout the year, I heard plenty that he was stroking threes in practice with Texas, and I don't really know. Uh, how this is different than that. From my perspective, in game situations, his three-point shot continues to be 
you know, a slow release and something that isn't going to happen or be the focal point of an offense. And if that's not the focal point of the offense, then I don't really know what is because he wasn't a great roller uh, this season. He doesn't really have a collection of post moves. And I think if you're, you know, looking for that type of skill set, you just should be looking elsewhere in terms of the best bigs in the class. Uh, And that's ultimately why, you know, I think I'm lower on him than the rest of the kind of consensus. Yeah, it's, it's very theoretical. Uh, you mentioned the defense. I think it's something that's also been talked about with DeAndre and even Marvin Bagley to a certain extent. It's like, well, he can, he, he can learn to do this because he's, because he's athletic. And it's like, yeah. well, yeah, they, they can learn it. It's not inconceivable that he could be a guy who can get on the perimeter and be what you want him to be because he's such a good athlete. But until you see the guy do it, like you can't assume it. That's that's my whole thing. It could be it's a potential outcome for him, but it's not something that uh, I just I just have not seen at all. And same with Aiton in a lot of ways defensively. It's like yeah, I, I get the the fact that he's sort of like chiseled out of stone. Like he's this great yeah. athlete and he's you know he's this great physical specimen. But until you see him defensively, I'm like please show me on tape somewhere where he was actually good defensively, and I would love to see that because it really wasn't necessarily there. So. Yeah, I'm with you. I think I'm obviously not quite as low as you are on Bamba, but I, sure. I definitely see why, though, that you're there because if you just take it for what it was on tape and kind of block out all the noise, it's pretty easy to be underwhelmed, honestly. Yeah, I think that that's right. And, you know, I'll say the, the difference between him and Aiden for me in, in particular, obviously, I think Aiden is more skilled offensively, but oh, sure. yeah. we saw like a decent percentage of time this year that DeAndre Aiden was able to get out on the perimeter, get down in the stance. Uh, and rotate with guards and cut off penetration. I think that Aiton kind of got a bad rap from that Buffalo tournament game where he didn't have a good game defending the perimeter, and that was sort of the the last thing etched in people's minds. But over the course of the season, he had some really great moments. There's there's a play against Arizona State that stands out in particular where he kind of uh, dug down from the perimeter to try to shut down a drive, forced a kick out to his man, and was able to recover and block a three-pointer. And it's just like, there are not many guys who can do that. And that's the type of, of movement that I don't think you see with Bamba, which is why I'm a lot more questionable on his defense than I think most people are. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean you can find a highlight block or two from Bamba that make your jaw drop because he's just oh, that yeah. long. Like it's, I get it. I get why people are so excited because if you just see him run up and down a court or uh, you know do some of the stuff that he's, that he's capable of doing that nobody else is necessarily capable of doing – I get it, but it's it's very theoretical. I think you know people people have like Jaron Jackson's this like uh, enigma guy who is like a complete projection. I think you I think you've seen him do a lot more things on tape than Obama has done. That's just my opinion. But I think that's exactly right. Uh, all right, we can move off the top guys. Unless you have a hot take on Michael Porter Jr. because he's somebody that I haven't talked about a lot because I don't think he's really somewhere in the Hawks range and I don't really like him very much. But do you have any blazing takes on Michael Porter Jr. before we move on? <laughs> um. I'm not a big fan. I will say this. I think I am one of the few people in the draft community who actually watched him play a meaningful college basketball game this season. All right. Uh, Because I went to Kansas, I bought the $40 uh, Kansas-Missouri scrimmage that happened earlier this season, which is like the only game that Porter played in a full-length, healthy situation, well, seemingly healthy situation. Um, And because of the rivalry that exists between Kansas and Missouri, like it felt like an NCAA tournament game, even if the teams themselves were like not at you know, full capacity in terms of the playbook. And I'll say this, the thing that really stuck out to me about that game is he finished six for 20 and he was regularly guarded by significantly smaller players, including LeGerald Vick and then Marcus Garrett, who's a six foot five freshman, uh, borderline top 50 recruit. And what stuck out is that Porter really struggled to generate efficient looks and wasn't able to like back those guys down in the block or drive by them consistently. And so I think that there are some real questions about how Porter is going to 
generate efficient offense at the next level, especially even if he gets smaller defenders on him on the wing. Uh, and that's really something that sticks out to me and has, has kind of soured my opinion of him as, you know, this all-encompassing scorer that I think he was billed as coming out of high school. Yeah, I mean, I saw, I obviously did not see that, which is a very interesting, honestly, because obviously, you know, most people in the world not have access to that particular footage, but... Uh, they won't release the footage. Like, they put it out on pay-per-view, they let you watch it then, and that was it. And then it just no goes away. Exists. There's like there's like three <laughs> minutes of Michael Porter highlights on YouTube from that game. Like, none of the bad, just the good things that he did, and that's it. Well, that's that sounds about right for the uh, for the pre-draft uh, culture that we live in, but sure. yeah, I didn't I didn't love Porter out of high school. Honestly, obviously, you know, I, I don't see I didn't see every game that he ever played in high school. All that stuff. I was I was never as high as everybody else was on him, and that's probably has to do with my own personal sort of makeup as uh, what I'm looking for. I don't really love guys who I, I sort of put in that category as like score first, score second, score third kind of guys because I don't really see yeah. him doing much else. That's just me. Um, and then you throw in the back and some of the makeup stuff that you hear, and it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm probably okay. Yeah, just not the type of player that I'm really willing to take a risk on at the top of the draft. I mean, yeah. there's certainly an outcome where he turns out to be the best player in this class, but just like if I'm a GM, that's not really the kind of guy that I want to bet on necessarily at the top. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely on that. All right, let's move off the top guys, talk a little bit about the Hawks' other slots in this class. Um one guy, and looking at your big board that jumped off to me, is someone who I also love, and that's DeAnthony Melton. I've been sort of pining for him, uh, for the Hawks at number 19, and hope, hoping that he's there, and sort of, maybe not just blindly taking him, but certainly heavily, concern, uh, heavily considering him if he is there. Um, is, what do you see in him, and uh, who are some other guys there that you might um, uh, sort of endorse if the uh, Hawks are able to stick, stay at 19 and just sort of draft the best player available? Yeah, so I've been deep in the DeAnthony Melton film because I just wrote something about him that should go up later this week. I'm really impressed. Like, there's been a year of not watching DeAnthony Melton play basketball due to the FBI probe, and he is so good. Like, his feel on defense, his reaction time on defense is incredible. He's a really terrific passer out of the pick and roll, someone who paces himself well and can whip one-handed corner passes or passes to the corner in either situation. He's terrific in waiting for the big to get into space and finding that pass. Um, he obviously struggles as a scorer. He's not super efficient around the basket and doesn't have much of a jump shot yet. But those are the types of things that I think are more correctable than the ability to pass, the ability to defend instinctually. And then the last thing I'll say about Melton that I kind of got me really excited that I, I didn't really remember. He's not the best athlete in terms of just like general athleticism, right? Like I think his max vert at the combine was 36 and a half, which is good, but like not Zaire Smith good. And what I noticed in rewatching him is like he gets everything out of that vertical and out of that ability to cover ground and he gets up into the air. He's terrific when it comes to blocking shots and covering ground in the air. He can get up and transition off of one foot and get up quickly. Uh, and, and he just gets everything out of his athleticism that he possibly can when he's playing uh, in a game. And so he's a player that I'm really willing to take a risk on because I think the IQ is so high. I think the feel is so high. I think he gets everything out of the athleticism that – you know, you just bet on that type of player to get good at the ability to score in some efficient way. And even if he doesn't, like you get some, you know, smaller budget version of Marcus Smart, and that's still a really good basketball player. Uh, if we're talking other players in that range for the Hawks, I mean, obviously, I think Kevin Huerta is someone who has made a big move because of the off-ball shooting in recent weeks. It came out today that he had hand surgery. Uh, I think that a lot of people kind of missed that around the combine when he didn't play the second day. Everybody assumed it was because he had such a good day. But the, yeah. the, 20, the 24-7 sports guys from Maryland actually said uh, he was dealing with a hand injury. So that was out there. 
Uh, I think that there are a number of wings that would be available at that spot. Melvin Frazier is another one who I think is going to be able to defend a significant number of positions. Josh Kogi could potentially be there. That might be a little bit high for him, but given the premium on wings, uh, that's the one I really like in that spot too. Yeah, I uh, definitely a, a, a fan of Josh Kogi, and of course he's a Georgia Tech product, so a lot of uh, Hawks fans yeah. certainly interested in him. Um, I feel like sort of my fever dream is Doncic and Melton at three and nineteen. I would just be like sort of levitate at that point in time if that were to happen. But uh, Frazier's a guy I like so a lot. Um, Huerter is interesting in that I think he is now higher than I would have him. Um, I kind of thought I liked him more than people did like two months ago, and then it was like, oh, he's going to go at seventeen. Like, wait, what? How do we get here? <laughs> uh, but no, I, I like him too. Um, what do you make of Troy Brown? I think Troy Brown is somebody whose game I've always liked going back to high school. He didn't have the greatest year in the world at Oregon, and I think that's the reason why he might be available at 19. But if he's there, he'd also be pretty appetizing for me. Yeah, another prospect who I think is a really high IQ player, which is a big reason to be excited by him. Not the same athlete as some of those other guys and certainly doesn't translate it as well functionally. But the ability to have a playmaker at his size on the ring is really wing is really valuable. I think that the concerns you have there are just – the jump shot has never really come around, right? And the jump shot has been a critique of his, you know, throughout his high school years and, and into this college year. And it's just never seemed to find its place. And I think that there are probably a little, you know, more concerns with him in terms of being able to develop that. But again, it's like a high IQ wing um, who can make plays off the ball as a defender, who can make plays offensively as a passer. He's certainly someone that I would be interested in if I were in that position. And, you know, especially if, like, I didn't end up with Doncic at three, that's probably somewhere where I would be looking. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm definitely guilty of falling in love with the guys who ha- can do everything except shoot, especially about high, high IQ <laughs> yeah. guys. Uh, like, yeah. De- like DeAndre Bembry is a famous one who's currently on the Hawks roster who I loved coming out. And it's like, all they got to do is fix his jump shot. And then they still haven't done that. And, you know, we're two years in. And uh, every once in a while, I'll see a flash from him. I'm like, yep, that's the guy I liked. And uh, he still can't shoot. Yeah, I saw Bimbery play live in D.C. I saw him play George Washington, and I was just like, that guy's awesome. He's so good. Yeah, I, he, like, I still, I still like him. I still think, I still believe, actually, uh, deep down in my soul that he's going to be <laughs> a good NBA player at some point in time. Um, a couple other guys, and I promise I'll let you go. Uh, one is one is the only, I think probably the only big man in the Hawks range at 1930-34 is Mitchell Robinson. Um, do you, what do you make of him? He's sort of an enigma in this class. Yeah, I would be so terrified to draft Mitchell Robinson. Um, (laughs) I think that the skill level is obviously incredibly high. He was one of the best shot blockers in EYBL during the year that he played with all the top prospects in this class. He averaged something ridiculous like eight blocks for 40 minutes, which is totally insane. He has great reaction time. He understands where to be and, and has the length to block a ton of shots. And he certainly looks like a vertical sports spacer. I have questions, obviously, like when you see workout videos coming out and it's like him working on his dribble from the half court line. And it's like, man, that's like not really the role that you're going to play. And then obviously, like, I think that there are just like a ton of character questions. If someone's going to draft him, they really have to sit him down and be like, okay, I need you to explain to me what happened with Western Kentucky and why you didn't go to school there and why you left and then why you came back and then why you left again. And then you decided not to go to school at all or not play basketball this year at all. There are just like so many questions that I have unanswered about him that I would be terrified to take him if I were a team without knowing answers to those questions. But obviously in terms of talent uh, and and skill, he's certainly someone who should be in that range, if not higher. Yeah, I think he's a lottery talent. It's just uh, an issue of everything that you just said. Uh, I do think he makes some sense for the Hawks if they go Doncic at three because Doncic, you know, for all the – 
you know, all, everything that he does well, you might want to open the door to a high ceiling big man later on, potentially. But if they go with Jackson or somebody like that at three, it becomes even less likely, I think, that they were going to gamble on Robinson because they already have John Collins. And it's like, all right, well, maybe if he's just by far your best player on your board, you still do it. But uh, it becomes risky. And I mean, as I mentioned, I mean, is there anybody else in that range? Because for me, Robert Williams is going to be gone. And after that, it gets like down to Mo Wagner. I mean, is there anybody else I'm missing that could jump into that even 34 range for the Hawks? Big men wise? In terms of in terms of big men? Yeah. I mean, probably not, right? Like Moritz Wagner is like probably there unless you want to take a real shot on like Omari Spellman or Chemezi Metu, and that's not a player that I would want to take that high. So it's yeah, such a it's such a weird thing, like to basically have one big from like fifteen to thirty five, but here we are. Yeah, I feel like it's kinda of like point guards were last year, right? There were a ton of good point guards at the top of the draft, and then as you kind of move down the order, I feel like we didn't have very many of those players in that you know, back into the first round range. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and of course, there's all the bigs at the beginning. So it's not like there's not enough bigs in this class. It just all happened to be grouped up in the top, you know, yeah. eight or 10 picks a lot of the way. Uh, all right, last last thing I promise to let you go. Um, a couple of pure point guards that the Hawks could look at, maybe at 30-34. Um, you know, it, you have your Aaron Holiday, you have Jalen Brunson, maybe even Elliot Kobo, those guys. Uh, the Hawks, of course, have this point guard issue, I will, I will put it, with Dennis Schroeder, <laughs> who may not be there. Very long. Even if he is, I don't think anybody thinks he's actually going to be a long-term guy in Atlanta unless a lot of things change. So would you be particularly interested in any of those guys late? And uh, if so, uh, who would be your favorite out of that kind of group? Yeah, I think that there's a decent number of prospects in there. I'll, I'll say this. I think if they want Elliot Kobo, they may have to take him at 19 rather than Yeah, I think 30. so too. <laughs> it seems like he's trending uh, towards the teens, right? Yes. Um, in terms of the kind of college prospects in that range, I, I really like Jalen Brunson. I think he's just going to be a steady hand uh, over the course of, you know, like a 10-year career as a backup with some low percentage chance of being a starter. His off-the-dribble shooting is really, really good. His ability to generate space because of his strength is really impressive. He's obviously going to be a defensive liability, but if you're playing him as a, back, as a backup, uh, I don't think that there are as many concerns I've consistently been a big Devontae Graham fan. I think he's someone they could look at it at, I guess, 34. Um, just a guy who knows how to lead a team, which is a weird thing to say. But uh, I think that, you know, everybody got uh, distracted by the Frank Mason train the year that he won National Player of the Year at Kansas. And realistically, everybody kind of thought that that was going to be Devontae's team um, just because of the way that he handles himself and the poise that he plays with. He is a a big shot maker who can knock him down off the dribble and will compete really hard defensively. He's obviously on the older end for the prospects. He's already 23 and, and that may not fit with what the Hawks are looking at in terms of the timeline, but just as a player, he's someone who I, I really like. Yeah. I kind of wish the Hawks were uh, in a different spot when I get down this range. Cause like Javon Carter, I really like Devontae Graham, I really yeah. like, but like they may not, they may, they may not make a ton of sense with what Atlanta is trying to do right now, but still, I mean, same thing with like Shake Milton who I've always enjoyed. And it's like, you know, maybe he doesn't fit particularly well in Atlanta. So I don't know. Maybe they'll draft him anyway. But uh, oh, one more guy. I'm sorry, I, I led you astray. One more guy I have to ask you about: Anthony Simons, the the other yeah. the other enigma in this class. What do you make of him? A total enigma in this class. I think he's someone who can, you know, obviously make shots and create and score from all three levels. That's a really exciting prospect. I think the fact that he uh, didn't really participate in the combine is a concerning aspect. It probably makes me think that some teams are. Uh, or that his team is really trying to hide him from the general public in, in what he is. Um, I haven't watched, admittedly, a ton of Anthony Simons tape just because I never got a chance to see him live on the UIBL circuit. But in theory, right, he's an exciting prospect just based on his ability to generate buckets. 
I don't know that that's worthy of a pick any higher than like 31 or 34. Um, but like you were saying, if the age concerns of some of the other point guards there are reasons to not take them because they don't line up with the timeline, then Simons may be the way to go um, because he's a younger prospect who's going to need a significant amount of development time. Yeah, he might need a full year in the G League or more. Like that's how far away he yeah. is. But uh, it's worth it's probably worth a shot, especially if you sort of mold the rest of your draft with guys who are a little bit safer. I think it would be interesting to at least envision him at 30 or 34 just just, because, just as a pure flyer of upside as a lead guard, especially if they don't have another one in this class. Uh, all right, man. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Please take a moment, plug anything you like. I know you're sort of a man of the internet, so please tell people where they can find <laughs> your stuff and uh, how, how they can follow you. Sure. Uh, most of my draft work these days is up on the Sporting News. Anything else you can that I write, you can probably find on my Twitter, which is at CStoneHoops. Please follow Chris. He does great work. I'm so glad you were able to come on, man. I really appreciate it. We'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was awesome. As for everybody else, please stay tuned. We'll have plenty more draft coverage in the next week, and uh, we'll be here, so check us out.